Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Would you take your Bibles and open to the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 12. Today we continue in our series on grace, becoming a people of grace. We're going to talk about how grace meets us in our weakness and suffering. It's a grace that is sufficient. It's a grace that makes us strong. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we don't mind coming to you today and telling you that there are times when we feel weak or discouraged, when we are suffering or disappointed, when we are sorrowing and grieving. We don't mind telling you that we need you, or the eyes of the world and the world's opinion is that we should uh, be self-sufficient and independent and strong. We know that that is a recipe for disaster for a Christian. We pray today, Lord, that we might understand how grace intersects with suffering, that we might become more of a people of grace to reflect your goodness to this world that needs it so much. With this, Lord, we lift our prayers in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Grace can be a theological concept. We learn a theological definition of grace as undeserved favor shown to sinners. We know grace sometimes as an abstract concept, but we don't want it to remain abstract or theological. There's probably no better time where grace takes on a practical significance to us than when it meets us in our weakness and suffering. Weakness and suffering become the silent teachers about God's grace in a way that it is burned into our lives and we never forget. In the classroom of Suffering 101, there is no lectures, slide presentations, or films, just a continuous laboratory experiment where God is working his work in our lives and we are discovering through our senses and our experience what it means to live by grace and be a people of grace. One preacher, once, an older preacher, once advised a younger man who asked him, what shall I preach on? And he said, simply said to him, preach to people's hurts and you will never lack an audience. So whenever we preach on suffering or disappointment or weakness, we know that we don't lack an audience because into every life a little rain must fall. And there are situations in your life, as well as mine, that make us feel disappointed or make us feel weak. Sometimes it's a result of a mistake that we make in life, a miscalculation, a poor judgment. And so there's a car accident that hurts us financially or causes us to suffer physically. Sometimes it's a result of a sin by which we might lose uh, our reputation, our job, um, uh, our standing with family, may lose a wife. Sometimes it is just the result of a random evil that causes us to suffer. You are raped, you are robbed, you are taken advantage of by fraud. 
Sometimes it's a natural disaster that may cause suffering in life, a hurricane, a flood, or a tornado, or an illness that afflicts your body and leaves you feeling weak, disappointed, and wondering. Sometimes it even may be the hand of God's discipline upon you. When you have strayed, God has put you under his discipline in order to bring you back to himself. With so many different possibilities for suffering, we know that each of us is suffering in some way in life. When suffering comes, we ask a lot of questions. Can I endure it? Does God know how I feel? Does he care how I feel? Can God help me? Will he help me? We're flooded with questions. I remember when I first uh, hurt my back back in uh, 1984. I, who had always had perfect physical health and had been proud of my athletic ability, was suddenly not able to pick up my own baby at the time and hardly able to sit. And I asked these questions. God, do you understand what this means? Do you understand what I'm going through? Do you understand how much it hurts? Are you going to heal me? Will you heal me? Theologically, I know he knew he could. I didn't know that he would. It's at times like these that we need God's strength and his power. And God's strength and power comes to us through his grace. Because grace is a gift of God. It's at those times in life where we need to enjoy his gift. In 2 Corinthians 12, we're coming into a situation in Paul's life where he is feeling very weak. He is writing this letter to the Corinthians because he is having to defend himself against his enemies and detractors at Corinth who are accusing him of false motives and accusing him of inability and incompetence. And so like any persecutor or enemy, they pick on his weaknesses like wolves nibbling at the flanks of a moose in order to weaken him and bring him down. They're trying to capitalize on his weaknesses, but you know, a good strategy when somebody picks on your weaknesses, and I tell my kids this, somebody picks on your weaknesses, join them, make fun of them, admit to your weaknesses, make fun of them yourself, and it, and it kind of de disarms your critics and your enemies. Paul seems to be doing just that. They are accusing him of being weak. And Paul says, okay, then let me tell you how weak I am. And he goes through 2 Corinthians chapter 11 bragging about all of his troubles and hardships and poverty and persecutions and shipwrecks, famine, and all the enemies that he had. He beats them to the punch. Now, when he comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, however, he mentions something that he could boast about. But then he says, but well, I'm going to refuse to boast about that. I'm not going to brag about that. And then he goes on to talk about a weakness he has. And he says, I'd rather boast about this. Because this is where I find God's strength and God's power and God's sufficient grace. So let's look at the first 10 verses of chapter 12 together. I will read them. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. 
Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me or to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may be upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to make some comments on the passage that we've just read. And then I want to name some principles for you and some suggestions for we who live in a world of weakness and suffering. You see, in chapter 12, he begins by boasting about a very intimate experience that Paul had. To him, it seems that we are given a glimpse. To us, it seems we are given a glimpse of one of his most sacred, intimate moments that he had with the Lord. And yet, it is so intimate, he does not want to go into details about it. But he, he mentions that he has a revelation from God. And that's quite the contrary to the spirit of the age, isn't it, that we find where people want to come to church and boast about the visions that they have in quite a fleshly and proud way. Paul says, I could boast that about my revelations, but that's, no, I'd rather boast in my weaknesses. What a spirit contrary to the age that we live in. You find that he, he just doesn't even want to mention the revelation to the point that he puts it into the third person. He says, I know a man, but we know he's talking about himself. He just doesn't want to take credit for the revelation and vision. You ever heard anybody boast about somebody else's vision? <laughs> but such is his spirit of humility. He talks about this man who, he said, 14 years ago, he says, I don't even know if it was in the body or out of the body. He was so caught up in it. He says, that was caught up into the third heaven. The third heaven is often thought to be the place of the very presence of God himself. Not just the atmospheric heaven, not just the spirit-filled heaven, the realm of the spiritual, but the third heaven being the very presence of God himself. What Paul is saying is that I am that man who was caught up right into God's presence, and there experienced things I can hardly even say to you. It shouldn't even be legal to say, verse 4, what he saw there in paradise. And then he says, I could boast about that, but I would rather boast in my weaknesses. I would be foolish, he says in verse 6, to boast about the things that I had. So the people would think of, of me beyond what I really am. And so he refused to capitalize on this sensational vision he had for his own sake to bolster his strength or standing. Rather, he said, let me tell you about my weakness that has been my constant plague throughout my life that I can't get rid of, that I go before God with at all times, and yet it remains and it incapacitates me and it hinders me. It weakens me. Okay, Paul, then what do you want to brag about? In verse 7, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. That God has given him so that he would not boast about himself beyond measure. He calls it a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet him, to beat him down, so that he would not exalt 
inappropriately. He says in verse 8 that I pled three times with the Lord about this thing. I think the idea here is that he constantly brought it before the Lord, maybe pleading with him three times. I would rather think it's probably a daily prayer request, but I think the three times probably indicate a very intensive time of prayer, either with another group of people, perhaps for having the elders in a church pray with him, or perhaps a time of prayer and fasting where he really sought God's will and deliverance from this. I hardly think it's only three times in a, in a regular day, daily prayer cycle. But the only answer he hears from heaven is silence about his weakness and the revelation or the voice of God that says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. The word perfect there means complete or full. What Jesus Christ is telling Paul is that it is while you're weak that I can show you the fullness and the completeness of my strength and my power. And Paul says in verse 10 that he has learned to take pleasure in his weakness and infirmities and persecutions and hardships and distresses. There's a certain way that Paul says, I've learned to delight in suffering. It may not be a plateau to which you and I have yet arrived, is it? Where we can genuinely say with heartfelt sincerity that, you know something, I am weak, I am persecuted, I'm under hardship, I'm suffering. But you know something? I've learned to enjoy it there. Paul says that's where he is. And he concludes by saying, it's because when I am weak, then I am strong. It's in the midst of that weakness that Paul has learned the grace of God, which is his strength in his sufficiency. But what I want to do is just draw four principles from the passage. Four things, I think, that will help us become a people of grace. And the first is this, that sometimes weakness and suffering is given to us to keep us humble. But you see, he says in verse 7, lest I be exalted above measure. Twice he says that in verse 7, that this thorn in the flesh, that this messenger of Satan was given to him so that he would not boast, so that he would not be arrogant. It may not be that we are arrogant in life ourselves, but there is a subtle pride that comes with self-sufficiency, with natural-born abilities, intellect, looks, financial or business insight. There are many things in which we may subtly feel sufficient, self-sufficient, and take a subtle pride. But when God inflicts us with a weakness, we're suddenly reminded that we cannot stand alone. That our strength comes from Him. Our ability to make wealth comes from Him. Our healthy bodies come from Him. That we are made and fashioned in the womb. And that is His design. And we take no credit for how He has made us. God reminds us that we need Him. Always and in all things. Through this suffering. Paul calls it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. It evidently is a physical ailment because he says it is in the flesh. A messenger of Satan, perhaps a satanic lead sent type of illness or problem. There have been dozens of guesses through the ages about what he's talking about. Everything from malaria to epilepsy to uh, poor eyesight. 
if I had to guess, I would probably side with the arguments for poor eyesight because he talks in Galatians chapter 4 about how much they loved him. He said, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He says in Galatians 6.11, that see with what large letters I have signed my own name, uh, evidently because he couldn't see smaller handwriting, perhaps, but we don't know. And that may be a good thing because if Paul had said that this is my problem, poor eyesight, then all of you with poor eyesight would say, amen, Paul, I can identify with you and all the rest of us would feel left out, you see. So Paul generalizes it because I think in the spirit, under the inspiring spirit of God, Paul is including all of us in this infirmity. If I, if I took a poll this morning and said, how many of you have any physical infirmity, we would all raise our hand. If I took a poll this morning and said, how many of us can identify any kind of weakness in our lives, we'd all raise our hands. And so the words that Paul's left us apply perfectly. And with this physical infirmity, perhaps, that weakened him to the point where he could not travel or could not speak with the strength that he desired, he realized that he had to rely upon God for every step that he took and every word that he spoke. He had to daily rely upon God as his strength. But in that position was not weakness, but that's where he found his strength. It is said that the ancient shepherds in the Middle East, as they shepherded their sheep, if they noticed that there was a lamb that would constantly go astray, which would put it in a danger because it could fall off of a cliff or fall prey to predators, would constantly go astray that the shepherd would break that little lamb's leg. And then as the leg healed, the shepherd would carry that lamb everywhere for weeks until the leg healed enough for the lamb to walk on its own. Then it would set the lamb down and the lamb would have to limp along and the shepherd would have to help it over the rocks and the creeks until eventually the lamb was able to walk fully, perhaps with a limp, but had finally learned to stay near the shepherd for strength and protection. Maybe sometimes God helps us to walk with a limp so that we remember that he is our sufficiency. We are not sufficient in ourselves. Again, we live in a day and an age where the world says that Christianity is for weak people. Organized religion is for weaklings. Governor of Minnesota says so. Hey, I'm the first to say, yes, I'm weak, and I need help in life. And those who think that they can stand without God will find that they can't. They will fall. Sometimes God brings suffering and weakness into our lives to humble us, to make us dependent upon him. And then I notice that in verse 8, sometimes God allows that suffering and weakness to continue. That's another principle that we can find in scriptures is that sometimes God does not answer our prayers the way we would like to see them answered, but he allows suffering, weakness, disappointment to continue in our lives. Grace doesn't mean that God removes the problem. Grace means that he gives us strength and power to deal with the silence about the problem. When we cry out to heaven and God gives us no answer, when we ask him for relief, but there's no relief, then we experience God's grace in the silence. We learn perseverance, which is to stand up under pressure, to give it our best against the odds, against the persecutors, against the circumstances. And God reminds us that he is our strength as the weakness and the suffering continues. I think if you were to talk to somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata, who as a teenager was 
crippled by a dive, <clears throat> a dive into shallow water and ended up being a quadriplegic where she remains today. If you read her story in her book, she'll tell you how she sought healing and went to church services and prayed for healing, but God did not answer that way. God has chosen to leave her confined in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, and God is glorified by her life. And I, I bet that she would tell you she would have it no other way, and I bet that she would not have one-tenth of the ministry she has today if God had relieved her suffering. God leaves us these things to remind us of who he is. To remind us who is our strength. And sometimes it continues. Talk to Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob the conniver, the deceiver, that's what his name meant. Schemed all of his life to get his own way. And everything he accomplished, he accomplished by his own schemes. But when he headed back for the promised land, God said, you're not going to go in under your own strength. You're not going to go in unless I bless you. And so Jacob wrestled there with the angel. Until the angel smote his thigh and put his leg out of joint. And then Jacob was able to go into the promised land by God's blessing and permission, but only with a limp. And I imagine as old Jacob limped through life and people asked him, what's going on with your leg there? He was able to say, it just reminds me that I don't get the blessing of God except by his grace and by his gift, not through my own strength. Weakness and suffering sometimes continues in life. God keeps us under his pressure to remind us of his strength. A third principle I see in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus answers Paul's prayers to remove the affliction, the thorn in the flesh, by reminding him that, his, that Christ's grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, it is at that time, at those times of weakness or suffering, that we experience God's strength. And the key phrase, the operative phrase here is, at that time time. At the appropriate time, you will have God's strength. Look at verse 10, at the very last phrase, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, the key word here is when. It is when we need it. God moves in to meet the need. Not before, but when. Paul talked to the Corinthians earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, it was with weakness and uh, in fear, he said, because they said Paul can't speak well. When Paul got up to preach to the Corinthians, he said, I just felt weak, but my strength was in God's power. My words were in God's power. Once he opened his mouth, he had God's provision and God's power. Did you know that God will only provide you the grace and the strength that you need when you need it? We don't store it up like uh, an ever-ready battery. You're not strong before you need to be strong. They call that dying grace. You ever hear that expression? You'll have grace to die when it's time to die, not before. So stop worrying about your death. <laughs> because when the time comes to face, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and to face that end of life, God will give you the grace that you need to die. I have a little different take on it. I call it preaching grace. See, because in my cycle of delivering sermons and preparing them through the week, all week long, I'm saying, I'm not getting enough work done on this. This doesn't look good. I'm not going to finish. And Saturday night, I'm starting to get, really get worried that this just doesn't go good. It's not going to shape up. I don't have anything to say. And Sunday morning, morning, I'm starting to feel the same way. But by the time I get up to speak, I've learned that God gives me speaking grace, preaching grace. I don't need a Saturday night. I need Sunday morning. That's when he delivers. God will give you strength at the time that you need it. 
How will he do that? Could be a lot of different ways. Could be the Spirit of God that's in you. That has a ministry to you at that particular time. It could be that the Spirit of God reminds you of a particular biblical truth or biblical verse at the time that you need it. It could be through a sermon that you receive strength and grace. It could be through a friend's counsel or love. It could be through something that you read. How and when God gives you strength when you need it could be an endless possibility of ways. I could share with you a pretty private and intimate experience of my own when I felt strengthened by God. I, I almost hesitated to edit it in, put it in and out and in and out, but I think I'll go ahead and share it with you. Back in September when I was hunting in New Mexico, I was hunting in an area called the Lincoln National Forest, and it's about 6,000 feet elevation, so you're up in some desert mountains. One of my favorite things to do there is to, to visit the rim because on the rim, the plateau of the mountains just kind of drops off into what's called Dog Canyon. And then you have, as you sit on the rim, you're actually literally looking across the air to, at nothing, and you have like 10 miles of expanse. And it's one, one of those breathtaking, beautiful sights. Um, and so I always manage to walk up there and just spend some time sitting and looking. In fact, I did it a number of, almost every day while I was there. And you see birds that they're flying beneath you or next to you. And uh, it's just an amazing thing to look out over all of that space from such a perch. And one morning I was hunting, and I, after my hunting, I got down from my stand and walked over to the rim probably about 10 o'clock in the morning and just kind of sat there on a the rock looking out over nothingness. I was just kind of feeling tired that morning. And, uh, and honestly, I don't know that what was exactly making me feel down. just could be a lack of sleep for all that. And I really had nothing specific worrying me that I could think of. Just, I think, the... the all the, you know how when you get away from things and get some perspective, perhaps you just feel a whole weight of responsibility of being a good dad and a good pastor and a good teacher or leader and everything else in life. And I was just feeling tired and a little bit overwhelmed. And I sat there on the rock looking out over this great expanse and just feeling that way, very tired. And I just kind of breathed out a few prayers to God. Lord, I'm tired. Uh, I, wouldn't it be nice? I started to think about Elijah who by the brook, was just exhausted, and lay down by the brook, and the ravens fed him, and then the angels came and attended to him. And Jesus, when he was so tired in the wilderness, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it says the angels came and took care of his needs. I said, wouldn't it be nice if I could just take a nap here, which I often do when I'm hunting, and just take a nap and just wake up, and the angels would be there to strengthen me in that supernatural way. And about that time, my eyes were getting heavy. And so I just, as I often do, I just lowered my head, closed my eyes, and started to Doze off with those thoughts in my mind. And just at that moment, I heard a screech, and I looked up. And there, flying right before me, soaring before me, were two eagles, two golden eagles, which I'd been looking for the whole week because they're in that area. I never, hadn't seen them. And they were just there screeching and flying right in front of me. It was as if God said, no, I'll always be there as your strength when you need me. I turned around to get my backpack, pull it up, and take my video camera out, and I was fumbling with that. And, you know, and by the time I looked up there and got the camera switched on everything, they were way off of this and so far. I wasn't even sure it was them. It was almost like I had seen a vision. And it was this God said, this isn't the Kodak moment. This is just something simple I wanted you to see. And so I just sat there and kind of appreciated that for a while. Coincidence, you say, okay, fine. It worked for me. When you need God's strength, he will be there for you. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fourth principle I see in verse 10. 
There can be a pleasurable side to suffering. There can be a pleasurable side to suffering. That seems a little bit perverse. Paul isn't a masochist when he says, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses. What he's saying is, it, is that is it, it is at those times that I take pleasure, not in my sufferings, but in the grace of God in my suffering. It is at those times that I have learned to appreciate God in a new or deeper or more personal way than ever before. It's strange how pain and pleasure are so closely associated. Have you ever thought about that? Let me uh, read a quote from Philip Yancey in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? He's, he mentions an ancient Chinese philosophy which says, to be dry and thirsty in a hot and dusty land and to feel great drops of rain on my bare skin, ah, is this not happiness? To have an itch in the private parts of my body and finally to escape from my friends to a hiding place where I can scratch, ah, is this not happiness? Pain and pleasure are inextricably linked. The pleasure would not exist or at least be recognized if it were not for pain. You buy a new pair of shoes, you wear them all day at the office, they're chilling your feet. There's that pain, you go home and you throw them off, and ah, oh, there's that pleasure. How would we know pleasure unless we knew pain? How would we appreciate heaven unless we could understand hell? How would we know good without a concept of bad? How could we understand the greatness of God's grace without suffering and pain, disappointment, or weakness in our lives? It would be impossible. Paul says it is the weakness and the suffering in his life that causes him to delight in the strength of God's grace. Of course, they have to go together. We could not learn one without the other. Another writer, Edwin Markham, says, Defeat may serve as well as victory to shake the soul and let the glory out. When the great oak is straining in the wind, the boughs drink in new beauty and the trunk sends down a deeper root on the windward side. Only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture. Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. Sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. Well, let me give you three suggestions if you're suffering. So let me give you three suggestions. Accept suffering as part of God's program for you. Accept it. Don't run from it. Don't deny it. Don't get embittered about it. Accept it as part of God's program, plan for your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to seek it or look for it. That would be a little odd. But welcome it if it has to be. It's part of God's curriculum. Before the, cro before the crown comes the cross. It's true for his own son, and it's going to be true for you. View suffering as an opportunity for you to experience and enjoy God's grace and God's strength. And so when you accept it, that also means don't get a guilt complex about it. Oh, God hates me, or I'm being punished for my sins. God is punishing me. Well, it may be. I agree. It may be that God is disciplining you for something in your life, but it's not because he hates you or he's given up on you. Just the opposite. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For whom the Lord loves, 
he chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The parent that loves a child occasionally spanks that child. Whatever the reasons, if there's suffering in your life, don't get a guilt complex about it. And then on the other hand, don't get a martyr complex about it. Oh, woe is me, and have a pity party. I'm the only one in the world suffering. That's what Elijah said to God. He said, I'm the only one that's being faithful for you, Lord, and I'm being persecuted all over the place. They're trying to kill me. And God says, no, wait a minute. I've got 7,000 other people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are faithful followers of mine. So don't get a martyr complex about suffering either. It's a common human experience that we all share together. Just accept suffering as part of God's program for you, as an opportunity to learn about his grace. Another suggestion is, let God carry you through it. It is when we suffer that God puts us up on his pedestal so that he can work on us. It is when God wants to carry you in the closest possible relationship. A child who breaks his or her leg and is carried by a parent is never so much going to experience the love and compassion of that parent than at that time. You remember that old poem about footprints in the sand and how the author says that God walked beside him with those set of footprints. And then the hardest times in life, he noticed there was only one set of footprints. And he looked up to God and said, why did you desert me in the hardest times of my life? And God says, no, it's at that, those times that I carried you. It is in suffering and weakness where we experience the intimate relationship where God actually picks us up and carries us in his arms. Let him carry you through it. Don't jump away from his purposes. Don't push him away. Run to him. You see, that's why this whole idea of mercy killing and euthanasia just doesn't wash. Because it is exactly at that time of need in a person's life where they are totally incapacitated when God's grace can shine more brightly. If there were no God, perhaps mercy killing would make sense. And euthanasia would make sense, but there is a God. And there is a God who can glorify himself through suffering of any kind. Sometimes it's easier to die for Christ than it is to live for him. Sometimes it's easier to give up than to go on. But the grace of God means that we don't give up, we go on. We don't die, we live. Another suggestion. Have confidence that God has enough grace to meet your need. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If you've got a need of grace, God's got super abundant grace. John 1, 17, grace upon grace. He's got wave after wave of grace for you. Romans 5, 19, 20, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God has an endless supply of grace, enough to meet your need. So much that when you are stripped of everything, God will show you that he is your all in all. Listen to the words of Harlan Popoff, who was, wrote a book called Tortured for His, Tortured for his Faith. Under communism in Bulgaria, he was arrested and imprisoned for 13 years, beaten and tortured. And this is what he concludes about his experience. Though I, I have preached of God's love from many pulpits, I came to realize his love in a new way in the black despair of subterranean cells and in the face of countless fellow prisoners. Stripped of all material things and distractions, I found a greater reality of God than I had ever known before. It is when God strips us bare that we can know God as never before. God has enough grace to meet your need. When weakness and suffering 
is part of our experience. There are two ways we can go. We can go the route of bitterness, anger at God, guilt, depression. Or we can choose a way of strength and power and intimacy in our relationship with God. Now, which is the way of grace? Grace says that we accept suffering as part of God's purpose for us. And with it, we find strength and power to go on, to live, to persevere, to the point where we say, I can delight in the midst of this experience because I'm enjoying God's grace. So I wonder if you found the strength, the power, the grace that he so freely offers. Remember that grace, by definition, is a free gift. It's contrary to self-sufficiency, which is what I do for myself. But grace can only be enjoyed when we lay that aside, that I can do it, and say, God, I can't do anything. I need your help. And then we receive the free gift of God. As weak vessels, as those who are suffering, we need to appreciate God's grace. It was D.L. Moody who said, the only way to keep a broken vessel filled is to keep it always under the tap. We need to always be in that relationship with God where we are appropriating His grace, staying close to Him, staying in His Word, staying with His people, letting Him work His work of grace in our lives in the midst of our trials, problems, sufferings, weaknesses. Stay under that tap of grace. Let grace do its work. The first missionary couple that Burleson Bible Church supported, and still do, after however old we are, 13 years. Today is our anniversary Sunday, by the way, 13 years as a church. We started last Sunday of October 1986. For 13 years as a church, we have supported Stephen Ruth Porter in Nigeria. And this September, I read, we, I got an interesting letter from them. It has to do with their daughter, Julie, who is now 12 years old who was born to them months before they were to leave to go to Nigeria in 1981. When Julie was born in 1981, they had already had two boys. Now came their little girl. The doctor had to inform them that because of a fever that Ruth had contracted during pregnancy, that little Julie had a calcified brain. Her brain was filled with calcium deposits so that she would be severely retired, retarded and never leave the state of infancy. And so that has been true for these 12 years now. Julie remains under their constant care in Nigeria, where they still continue. They went, and they've been there for 13 years. She remains in this state of infancy, unable to do anything, but must be carried and fed as a baby. Well, in this letter, they describe a sincere note they got from another man who told them that God had given him a revelation and a vision and direction that uh, they were to come back to the United States or he was to go over to be with them so that they could see him face to face and he was to pray and God would heal Julie. And they reminded him that they, after thinking about this quite a bit and really searching their souls for this, they reminded this sincere and loving friend that they had already done that. He had already prayed with them with the leaders in Nigeria when he was there and that God didn't change Julie's life. And they wrote to him with these words. They said, we believe that God can heal Julie, and we're not opposed 
in any way to seeking his will in this matter. However, we also strongly believe that God chooses to put such situations like Julie in the lives of his children for their growth and edification. And in this long letter of a response to him, they reminded him about the circumstances in Julie's life. They told about when she was born and how the doctor came and gave them the bad news and how they continued to go on to Nigeria with hardly anyone knowing except for their closest friends about their trials and how Ruth became angry and bitter at God because of the experience and how they prayed in Nigeria for Julie's healing. She says, as you remember, we prayed that the Lord would heal Julie, but if not, that the Lord would heal our hearts. And God healed that day. We firmly believe that Julie was healed that day. We also believe that God worked a work of grace in our lives that day. Let me explain why we believe this, that God worked a work of grace in our lives. No, Julie does not walk or talk. Julie remains as an infant. Every day she must be cared for as an infant would be. Yet we believe that God has worked in her life. And then she recites several circumstances why they believe God has worked in her life. They said the doctors came in, a neurologist, and said that they should expect to live a miserable life. That Julie will be miserable that children with so much calcification in the brain are miserable and crying 99% of the time, just expect a life of misery. And they said the doctor walked into the room to find a giggling and smiling little baby. And that's the way she's been since. The doctors told, her, told them to expect, expect constant seizures. About the age of three, she'd begin having seizures and have to be on heavy medication. They said she's 11 years old at the writing of this letter, and she's only had one confirmed seizure in her entire life. She takes no regular medications except for the chloroquine, which is the anti-malarial medicine that all missionaries take. The doctor said that she's going to always be sickly and subject to diseases and viruses that go around, and yet they say she's been the healthiest child you could hope to see. She just gets regular illnesses that go through our family, and she does just fine with them. She says, I believe that God worked that day in our lives, that God sovereignly put her in our life for our training. Julie has become the center of sunshine in our home. To God's glory, people speak of our positive attitudes where she is concerned. We love this little girl just as she is and have accepted her as a special person with a unique and special work here in Nigeria. I can honestly say that God has removed any feeling of resentment at her care or frustration at the way she limits our lives. We feel that she is a total blessing in our lives. Her smiles, her giggles, her soft sounds, her response to the family members cause us all to smile and feel a warm feeling inside. We dread the time when her body gives out and she, and she will leave our family to walk and talk in heaven. Her life expectancy is 20 years. Her life has caused us to consider more carefully the ways that we love our normal children. She's caused us to be more open and sensitive to others. God has put into our lives several handicapped children in our community and has worked through our experiences to comfort and love those who hurt. Even those who lose normal children to death reach out to us, for they see that God has worked in our lives and taught us many things through our little angel. God has been so good to us, and, be, and much of that goodness has been a direct result of his working in our lives through our little Julie. When God did not heal her completely in 1988, we figured that he had, we had been given Julie for the ways that we could be taught and molded into useful vessels to help others that were in similar situations. We also have seen the importance of modeling the care of a handicapped child in a culture where to have a handicapped child is considered to be a curse or a sign of sin. We strongly believe that sometimes, because of our fallen world, that we as Christians must deal with sickness and handicaps as an example to the world around us, how God can help you through the trials we face. You will meet the porters in the springtime when they come back. But let me ask you something. Did God do a work of grace in their lives? He obviously did. Could God have done that work of grace apart <clears throat> from suffering and pain? He obviously couldn't. Does God want to do the same work in your life?
He certainly does. He absolutely does. Jesus Christ is the only way that suffering makes any sense in life. Without Jesus Christ, it just doesn't make sense. Do you know him as Savior? If you do, you're going to have an awful hard time untangling the sorrows and the problems and the trials that have come upon you. When you know Jesus Christ and his great love for you that was demonstrated by his death for your sins, you'll understand that all this has its purpose, that God is working in you. Let's pray. Father, we want to have the faith to believe that you know what you're doing, that you help us when we need it, that trials and suffering has a purpose beyond our imagination or ability to figure out. And Father, I would be the first to admit today that yes, I am weak. Yes, I am crippled in body and in spirit, in mind and will, in emotions, and I need your help constantly and daily. I need to be under the tap of grace. We have no problem admitting that, Lord, because it is when we are weak that you are strong. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace@gracelife.org. at gracelife.org. See you next time.